0: Alright, alright, hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of the 411 Ground and Pound MMA podcast. We are your weekly look into the wide, wacky, wonderful world of mixed martial arts. My name is Robert Winfrey, and I am your host. Per usual, thank you very much for tuning in, thank you very much for interacting with the product, anything you can do in that respect helps, like, comment, subscribe, star rating, written review, share us around, friends, enemies, strangers, I don't care. Point them in my direction if you think they'll enjoy the show. All right, on the agenda this evening, what do we got? UFC and ESPN plus 76, that happened. Uh, it was a card. It was a card. We'll talk about that. It was a Bellator event. I'm not going to talk too much about it, Um, but there's a few things from there that I want to talk about. Uh, notably, Fedor Emelianenko retiring because Fedor is... Maybe my favorite fighter ever. Talk a little about that. Then the big thing. UFC 284. UFC is in Australia for this event. Islam Makashev, your freshly crowned UFC lightweight champion, goes for his first title defense when he takes on pound for pound King. UFC featherweight champion, Alexander Volkanovsky. I am pumped for that fight. And news of the week, because there's news. So, that's how that goes. All right. I think that's all the preamble out of the way. Let's go ahead and get into this. So, UFC on ESPN Plus 76. This event started at 8 p.m. my time. It was worse for people on the East Coast. Um, Yeah, this event was supposed to take place in Seoul, South Korea. It obviously did not. They moved it to the Apex. Um, I don't know exactly why. Again, I mentioned that there might have been some kind of, like, Uh, logistical concerns with the South Korean government. Turns out they also, they kind of wanted this thing to be headlined by the Korean zombie, Chan Sung Jung, but that fell apart. And instead, they didn't, I guess they just felt they couldn't sell enough tickets without Chan Sung Jung as the headliner. World domination. Yeah. So much world domination, I'm going to kind of paraphrase Jack Slack. UFC doing lo- world domination. So well, they're flying all the fighters for their tournament finals from their road to the UFC stuff. From Asia, kind of where they are somewhat known to fight on the prelims at an ungodly hour in the Apex in front of no fans. I mean, not strictly no fans, but generally no fans. <laughs> world domination. So, yeah, anyway. That's why, And but the air, the long and the short of that is the, the broadcast was originally supposed to accommodate the primetime South Korea market. That was the airtime they had set up. When they moved the venue, they couldn't change the broadcast time, so the time slot was the time slot. Anywho, your main event. Uh, Sergey Spivak runs over Derek Lewis, submitting him with an arm triangle choke. Uh, 305 of the first, not competitive at all. Um, Lewis didn't land a single strike. I believe he threw three, officially. I think I personally only saw two, but landed none of them. Um, Spivak got him down pretty quickly. He avoided a few punches, got a clinch, hit a hip toss uh, into kind of you know scarf hold, Lewis was able to get up, but Spivak does kind of the um, the American folk style or the khabib thing, where oh you're exposing your back. Well, I may not be I'm not the best back taker in the world, so rather than try to do that and lose control entirely, I'll just settle for getting my hands around you, keeping that locked, and I'm just gonna mat return you, punch you, mat return you, punch you, mat return you, punch you, rinse and repeat. Until you're slower getting up, then I get mount, and I beat on you. Then you give up your back, and I punch you some more. Then you roll, and this time when he... the last time when Lewis tried to roll out of the bad position, Spivak grabbed an arm triangle, made him tap. Um, Spivak's had a couple of losses that have unfortunately kind of pushed him down some... Uh, in estimation. He's only lost... He's lost a few times in the UFC to Walt Harris, Marcin Tabora, and Tom Aspinall. Harris was his UFC debut. He took that fight on short notice, and he got run over in less than a minute. Not a good debut. He beats Ty to Ivasa to follow up, then loses to Marcin Tabora, who's... It's tough. Tabora's tough to get a read on. He's he's good enough to beat the majority of the division. But it's also like losing to him can be a pretty... It's kind of thing that can stick in your mind sometimes. Anyway, Spivak goes on a decent winning streak after that. Loses to Tom Aspinall. Unfortunate, but also no shame because Aspinall, very, very good. Wins two in a row to get this fight. Finishes, obviously, here. So he's three in a row. Should be in the top ten of the rankings. Uh, it's time we start paying a little more attention to old Sergey Spivak. Look, Derek Lewis is approaching washed territory between his age and the mileage and the injuries and health issues he's had to overcome. I don't know that he was a top ten heavyweight coming into this fight. I would not. I, I don't have personal rankings. If I did, he would not have been top ten. Uh, he would have been top 15, I think, still, but he would not have been top 10. I, I might have actually had, would I have had Spivak above him? I don't know. Probably not. Um, Spivak's wins to get this fight were, they were good performances, but I hadn't seen him really beat someone with, you know, name value, and he did. Like, this is the highest profile win of Spivak's career by a wide margin. Uh, he wanted a post-fight bonus. Which he got. I'll spoil that. Um, He he did get one, finally, on his, like, 10th UFC fight. That's his first post-fight bonus, right? I think it is.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is. Could you argue some of the others? Eh, maybe. Um, I think the only one you could maybe...
0: You could maybe argue when he beat Tai Tuivasa he kind of got... Unfor- I mean, your performance of the night for that one were Israel Adesanya knocking out Whitaker in two rounds. I mean, less than two, but in the second. And Jorgen... Dude, Jorgen DeCastro's knockout of Justin Taffa was just really good knockout. Um, Hardy? It
1: was UFC 272. Got
0: our performances there. Holland and Marina. Yeah. Holland winning's fine. I might have given him the one over Marina Morose.
1: Um. I might have advocated for that. Jalen Turner had a
0: really good. There's a so the long and the short of that is there might be a few that you could say maybe he. He could have been in consideration more than uh, was shown. But he finally got one. Um, yeah, he's going to be fighting. He should be fighting real top-end heavyweights now. He's He's got good takedowns. Not great, but good. He's got a pretty good motor. And he seems to have a good beat on his style and how to make it work. So... Uh, he's gonna be a problem he just is uh you know that was your main event this is not gonna take too long co-main event at light heavyweight devin clark defeated daun jung via unanimous decision 3027 across the boards uh i think i gave jung one of those rounds but i don't object na- i, I might have scored look i might have scored this for jung but i think i said all three rounds were close well, I scored it for Clark, but I'll again, said they were all close. Um, I'm not up in arms over the scoring here. A uh, lot of clinching from Clark. Not a great fight. Uh, heavyweight, speaking of not a great fight. Marcin Tabora defeated blagoy Ivanov, a unanimous decision, 130-27, 229-28. I was 29-28. The first couple of rounds, um, I gave give the first round to Tabora, the second to Ivanov. When they were striking, um, Tabor was doing this thing where he'd enter. uh, He'd enter the pocket with a decent enough combination, but then he'd stop and kind of plant his feet right at the end of Ivanov's punching range rather than getting all the way out and resetting. I don't know if he was looking to counter again or looking for another offensive opening, but the constant in pause before moving again allowed Ivanov to start landing some counters, or at least throwing them. Um, third round, Tabora's had enough of this nonsense. Gets a takedown, spends the round on top. Nothing too fancy, not a great fight. Better than I expected. You know, I want to give credit to both guys here. I thought this was going to be a total snorefest. It
1: wasn't that. It was not a total snoozer.
0: Again, I had my issues with it, but... I expected this to be really boring, and Ivanov was a lot more active than he's been in the past. Now, you might still look at this activity here and go, wait, he was less active in the past? Yeah. Yeah, he was. Take that for what it's worth. Uh, Featherweight, the return of the Korean Superboy, Duho Choi, he and Kyle Nelson fought to a majority draw. There was a 29-27 for Choi, and then two 28-28s. The... Relevant factor here comes in the third round where Choi is deducted a point for a headbutt. Now, this was not... I want to talk about Laura Sanko in detail in a second here, but she provided an important insight here into the referee's decision to take the point. Choi was not trying to headbutt Nelson here. They were on the ground. He was in Nelson's guard. And he wasn't sitting there going, you know what, I'm going to throw a headbutt. And then threw a headbutt. It wasn't that. But the language around intent is not necessarily, do you intend to foul? It's a bit more, are you in control of what's going on? So, for example, if we're in the clinch and I've got you in a double collar tie, and I pull your head into my face, you didn't headbutt me. Like, that's not you in control of what's going on. I did that to myself. That's not a circumstance where a point deduction for the other guy would be, for you would be appropriate. In this instance, Troy's fighting over wrist control. He's tra- kind of trying to get his right arm out. And he's doing a little bit of the lift and slam motion there against the fence, which complicates things. So he kind of pulls back, and he's got... Nelson had his left arm overhooking Choi's right, or, or fighting with it. It might have just been over the forearm rather than overhooking the arm proper, but bear with me, it's not terribly relevant. That's the arm Choi's fighting over. Nelson's right arm is kind of in, again, it's in kind of a collar-type position around the back of the head. And he's fighting for you know, posture control. There's an argument to be made, and I don't agree with it, But that Nelson was pulling Choi's head down. Again, he's trying to control posture. It doesn't look that way if you look at the muscular tension uh, in the replay. It doesn't look like Nelson is really pulling the head down. So when Choi kind of comes up and then back down, again, he's not trying to headbutt Matt Nelson. But he is instigating the motion. He is trying to move around. He's not being responsible with what's going on. They bonk heads. Referee takes a point after looking at the replay. He wants to make sure that the point deduction is appropriate. And you know what? I think it is. I. It sucks that it's this fight because it costs Duho Choi the fight, the point deduction. It turned it into a draw. Um, Nelson wound up on two scorecards winning the third because of the point deduction it wound up being a 10-8 for him. Troy had won the other two rounds, hence t- 28-28. I gave Troy all three rounds. My scorecard was 29-27. Um, I thought Troy did a better job. I thought Troy just did more stuff. Nelson did a lot of holding, uh, not a lot of damaging, and
1: it was just kind of a problem. What's the second?
0: I forget the official scorecards. It might have been the second round that Nelson got. And then the third became a draw round. Because they gave it to Choi. but again, after the point deduction, it was 9-9. Resulting in the same scorecard. Either way. Um, I think that's how it went, actually. Long and the short of it. um, For a guy who'd been off for as long as Choi has, I mean, he hadn't fought since December of 2019. So over three years. The poor guy hasn't won a fight since 2016 when he knocked out Tiago Tavares. So as a guy who watched his ascent in the UFC and was really excited, like I was kind of, you know, hoping for a feel-good moment for the guy. We didn't get it. Uh, Nelson is... Nelson seemed to have better cardio this time around. I've seen him do the same kind of uh, fight in the past. And he's gassed out pretty hard. He didn't hear, so kudos to that. Um, sorry, last thing on the point deduction. Laura Sanko, on commentary, was the one who brought up. You know, Intent is about were you intending to throw the weapon as much as it is, you know, what was the foul? And Troy was in control of what he was doing with his head. Again, I don't think he was trying to land a headbutt. He was trying to move around, and in the course of doing so, When Nelson wasn't really able to move himself, hit him in the head with his own. Like, I understand it, and I I don't even hate it. I understand the referee's hesitancy to take points in general. These are three-round fights in the 10-point must system. Um, you don't want, you really don't want a lot more stuff like this. At the same time, there's a lot of really like, there's a lot of There's not a lot of flagrant fouls in MMA. There are some, don't get me wrong. But there's a lot of legitimate fouls in MMA that are not... If you understand the difference in basketball terminology, a technical foul or a flagrant foul is not the same as a regular foul. And unfortunately in MMA, a lot of regular fouls just kind of get ignored.
1: And... I don't know exactly what the solution is.
0: Um, if we had a better scoring system, that might help. You know, one where a single point deduction isn't as big a deal as it is. But there's a lot of fence grabs that, you know, the ref warns you five or six times. There's a lot of eye pokes or groin strikes that get kind of brushed off. There's a lot of, you know, grabbing of the glove that gets ignored. There's a lot of stuff that just... Because there's not really a, there's not a penalty to what happens, and that brings up some, there's an interesting philosophical discussion around, and it's more a point philosophers have made, and I suppose how you want to argue this is up to you, a law or a rule is only actually a law or a rule if it's enforced. So think about it this way. If you're driving down the road, and the road you see a sign for the road that says speed limit, 55 miles an hour. If you're doing 70, and everyone else around you is doing 70, and you all drive by a bunch of cops and no one's pulled over, what's the speed limit for the road? Right?
1: So, by the same token in MMA or any other combat sport, you know, what is... What's actually
0: the rule? Um, there's a there's a story I heard, and this is not a unique story. I'm going to kind of paraphrase this guy in particular, uh, a kickboxer, who was talking about I couldn't get this I couldn't get this opponent off me. I was longer, I was taller. He was shorter, but he was good. He was able to get inside, and he kept crowding me, and he kept beating me up. I asked my coach, What do I do? I may have told this story before, but coach says, next time he comes in, throw a knee. A knee right up the middle, right into his stomach and his chest. But there's no knees in this rule set we're using. It was again, it was more, let's say kickboxing, it was like more American kickboxing, I think would be the definition. A lot of different sub rules for kickboxing and whatnot, so whatever the, the rule system was in place, no knees. Coach said, throw the knee. Now so the next time the his opponent comes in, he knees him in the body, gets, and he backs off, didn't like it. The referee hops in, looks at the fighter, and goes, hey, no knees.
1: Tells him to fight again. That's the penalty.
0: The reprimand from the referee was all the penalty. You might say, well... Maybe that's all that was appropriate okay i'm I'm not even necessarily saying he should have been disqualified you know, or a point should have been taken necessarily, but that other guy stopped closing distance on him so he again he paid the price that was inv- that was in, that was put upon him a warning and a reprimand from the referee. He got what he wanted and he wound up winning the fight. And there's a lot of and there's just a lot of rules in m m a and whatnot that get kind of ignored, and it's not great, it's really not so if we're gonna get a bit more I think all most of us want is consistent application, which is a fair ask for the record, but I don't. I don't really object in this case. And headbutts are something that they kind of take a bit more seriously. You know, there's there are degrees of fouls. I mean, uh, I heard Jeremy Lambert joke for years that, you know, Czech Congo is one of the smartest MMA fighters in the world because he knows that, that the first time he hits someone in the groin, there's no repercussions. So you might as well punch someone in the crotch. There's usually knees with Congo, but you get the point. If I can hurt you and debilitate you, and I know with 90% certainty that the only thing that's going to happen is the ref tells me, hey, watch it. Why wouldn't I? And that's a problem in MMA in general. So, again, it sucks that it kind of reared its head here, but, you know, should have been more
1: disciplined about what you were trying to do there, uh, Mr. Troy.
0: The fight itself was okay. He wasn't great. Um, but Troy's defensive wrestling was all right. Landed some good punches, you know. And he, he was letting some gnarly calf kicks. Kind of sad he got away from those down the stretch. but. Uh, and kicking off the main card, Adam Fujit defeated Yas- uh, Yasuka Kanoshita via TKO. Elbows from basically full mound. 436 of the first. Dude, Fugit came here to run this guy over. Um, Knosta threw a kick. He got countered and kind of dropped. Uh, and then once Fugit got on top, it was ride, transition, ride, transition, mat return, land damage. He said something interesting after the fact that I think is true. Um, referees really don't like people landing elbows. Like They're a lot more conscious about what those can do. So that was why he chose the weapon he did. It's a smart observation. Unfortunately, loss for Kenosha, who had a little bit of hype coming in, but really good for performance out of Fugit, who took his UFC debut on like nine days' notice. So if this is more, in, if this is more indicative of what he's capable of, you know, fair play to him. He looked pretty good here. I mean, that was your main card. As for your prelims, the first four fights I'm going to mention were the Road to UFC Finals. Um, Anshul Jubli defeated jeka Sarig. Sarige? Saragi. Saragi. I forget where the accent was. Saragi. Uh, punches and elbows, three forty-four of the second. Just um Saragi had his moments. But on the ground, just not up to snuff. And once Jubli got him down, was able to pass, was able to control, was able to obviously get to a position where he could just unload safely. Uh, Jubilee, the first Indian born. Uh, the, Fighter to make his way into the UFC. The only other one was um, Arjun Buller, who's in, who's uh, Indo-Canadian. He was born, I, been, I believe, mostly raised in Canada. I have to double-check that, but born in Canada, Jubilee born and raised in India. So good on him. And uh, Saragi was the first Indonesian fighter to ever make it to the UFC. So we're knocking some more countries off the list. A decent performance out of Jubilee. Didn't look great on the feet, and his cardio might be an issue. He, the dude can wrestle a little bit, but a couple of times, especially in the first round after uh Saregi was able to get out of bad positions and made them reset, like, you can tell wrestlers af- after they've wrestled for a bit and they have to start striking again, like, the fatigue's real. That's why they reshoot, because they know what they're doing there and their body's more used to it. Uh. Something to pay attention to anyway, that was a lightweight. Featherweight. Uh Long, excuse me. Zhang young Li defeated uh Yi Zha via split decision. There was a 30-27 for E uh for Yijia, Yi Zha E. Y I E. Which I don't understand at all. Um Li had the second. Like I thought Li clearly had the second. I might be wrong about that, but that was my read on it. Uh, the other two were 29-28s for Lee. The round that I thought E could have had. He took one of them. Was it the third? I forget. Um, a lot of wrestling from E, but not not that great on the feet. And his takedowns, he struggled to really get control. There was a lot of clinching here. Um, not the worst outing from both guys, but you've seen this fight before. Uh, bantamweight. Oh, this was something. Rinya Nakamura he blitzed Toshiomi Kazama, knocked him out in 33 seconds. Um, Kazama came out, Nakamura came out. They were um Southpaw Nakamura. Kazama put on a lot of pressure at first, but he got tagged pretty early, and Nakamura just bulldozed him after that. Kept up the pressure, got him with a really nice pull counter too. Um, yeah, again, 33 seconds was all it took. Now, here's the thing about fighters like Nakamura, and this is true of a lot of fighters. If you've ever tried to do this competitively, I haven't, but I've been around enough to have heard the following, to have observed this. If you're coaching a younger fighter, a developing fighter, and Nakamura, he's Young, he's only 27, and he has a whopping seven fights. Now he's also wrestled internationally, representing Japan, which is not an easy thing to do. In fact, he won gold in the under, 20 se- under 23 World Championships in 17. Again, nothing to sneeze at. He's uh, he's wrestled internationally, and that's n- that's that's a heck of an accomplishment. He's been successful internationally. In fact, he took bronze at the 2018 World Cup of wrestling. Like This guy can go. But when you're trying to get younger and developing fighters, there's a mantra you'll hear from coaches. And they will drill this into their developing fighters. Get on offense, stay on offense. Because it works. Especially
1: at a... Certain level, just being the guy doing stuff will win you
0: fights pretty consistently. So Nakamura, I mean Nakamura, land outlanded everyone in this tournament by a pretty ridiculous margin. Like the dude's, he's very offensive-minded, and he's got a motor, and it's bantamweight, so he's got a motor. That. That's how you want to start fighters. Especially while they're figuring out their styles and what they're very good at. The best general rule, especially while you're developing, you can get on offense, stay on offense. Most people aren't good at defense. Most rule sets reward aggression, and especially, like, the fruits that aggression will give you. Uh... And there's a few different rule sets where this isn't quite as true. If you do Point Break, if you like World Karate rules, the WKF, World Karate Federation rule set, not quite as true. But like even Taekwondo, like look at how look at their scoring criteria, and look at their rule set, and tell me that you're not very much rewarded for just being the person doing more, being more active, get on offense, stay on offense. Now, there's nuance to that, especially if you do uh, Taekwondo at at the elite level. But the basic rule is still, you know, be first, be active. That'll take you a long, long way. In MMA, that's very true. If you ever watch, like, regional MMA, all the time, all the time you see it. The, The people who are very good defensively or who are Good enough defensively and just tough enough to weather a storm. They're kind of few and far between. And frequently, you know, this would be the other half of this, frequently if you get those guys who just you know, get on offense, stay on offense, if they're not properly conditioned, that falls apart after the first round a lot. Not always, but a lot. But for the most part, you're going to win. Nakamura still strikes me as someone... In his MMA development, who is in the get on offense, stay on offense phase of his development, that's going to get him hurt, unless he, if he doesn't change it, it will get him hurt. It'll get you through a big chunk of opposition, but it won't get you all the way to the top. By the time you get to the very top, like you need more than just get on offense. You need a lot of subtlety. You need an identity. You, st- It still behooves you more often than not to actually be the one on offense. But he's still refining a lot of stuff. That said, you also, again, you hear coaches say that all the time. You also don't see a lot of fighters able to do it all the time consistently because it's scary and it's hard. And being able to pull it off is not easy. He pulled it off, and he's pulled it off for, he's only been a pro since 2001. He's only coming up on his second year as a pro. Like, I'm willing to give this guy time to develop. Uh, this is an observation about where he is right now. Throwing him into the deep end of Bantamweight would be a serious mistake. This is a guy who's going to take a few years still to really cook, to really refine himself. And this was a really nice performance. You know, 33-second, first-round knockout. Like, there's there's good stuff here. But let, I'm not one of these people like, oh no, the future of Bantamite. I don't know that he might be. He might also burn out in eighteen months. That happens too, so we'll see. Very good finish from him. He looked again, to his credit, man, he looked good here. He once he got once he got really going, like dude is an avalanche. <laughs> um and at flyweight, our last well, technically our first, but the, the last tournament final. Um, Hyeongseong Park defeated Seonguk Choi via rear naked choke. 3-11 of the third. Commentary played this like a pretty big come-from-behind win. Um, I actually had Park winning the first two rounds. Not On further consideration, I'm not sure about the second. The second might still have, should have gone to Choi. I, I will stand by Park getting the first, though. Um, not a great fight. Neither guy seemed to really kind of get comfortable until almost the end of the second. It was when things, like, the moment, I think commentary mentioned, like, the moment got to these guys a little bit, pretty clearly. But credit to Park, uh, his pummeling and hand fighting to get the choke were really nice. Uh, and both guys are still young. It's flyweight, you know, if the UFC still even keeps the division, who the heck knows, but... Uh decent enough finishing and not a great fight though. At middleweights, um Junyong Park, the Iron Turtle, defeated Dennis Tolulin via technical submission of rear naked choke four oh five of the first. Um fun little fight here. Park is Park's kind of a tank, man. Like, if you remember he's only lost he lost to Gregory, he's only lost in the UFC to was Anthony Hernandez and Gregory Rodriguez. And he gave Rodriguez some problems. He uh, got a little bit overanxious, and Rodriguez is really good. And made him pay for it. But did okay on the feet. Once he got things to the ground, just much better than Tolulin there. So, solid stuff out of park. And kicking everything off, the fight I was actually most interested in, or fighter in the entire card. Tatsuro Taira defeated Jesus Aguilar via verbal submission, a triangle armbar, 420 of the first. Uh, I said this after his debut. I said this when I was hyped for his debut. Tatsuro Taira is is legit. That's maybe the best Japanese prospect in the sport. That's one of the better flyweight prospects in the UFC. I'm not saying future champion at the moment. I still need to see some development. I need to see how he develops. But he is dynamic. He is slick. He's a finisher. Pay attention to that dude. He is young. He's young, man. He is very good. He's going to be a problem. Whatever else happens at Flyweight, that dude is a problem. Uh, So that was the event. We lost... um Jiyeon Kim and Mandy Bohm. There's some medical issue with Mandy. Uh,
1: unfortunate.
0: Yeah, that was the event. Your bonuses. There was no fight of the night. That's fair. There wasn't really a great fight. Performances went to Sergei Spivak, Anshul Jubilee, Rinya Nakamura, and Tatsuro Taira. No objection. No objection to any of that. Eh, Joon Junyong Park... A little bit unfortunate because he had a his submission was nice, but he would be the odd man out of the other finishes. Um, it did oh, Fugit like, again. I'm not objecting to the four that were chosen here. You know, what Spivak did to Lewis was definitely bonus worthy. I might have swapped Jubilee and might have swapped Jubilee and Fugit personally. But, that's more a me thing. Like, that's how that's how I would have apportioned them. I don't think it's wrong to give it to Jubilee instead of Fugit. But Nakamura and Tyra, easy, easy bonus winners. Like, Nakamura's knockout was beautiful, and Tyra, the triangle armbar he hit, man, is so good. But he gets a... Aguilar comes out and he comes to fight. Um... They trade real quick, and Tyra gets a takedown. He's kind of caught in a guillotine, but he's in half guard on the safe side, and Aguilar's kind of fighting for the grip. He can't quite get it. Uh, Tyra eventually gets his head out. It takes a while, but he gets there. Tyra with a really nice pass to full mount. Goes to the mounted triangle, rolls for the triangle, so he goes to his back, hits the angle. Can't quite get everything compressed. There's still enough kind of posture in... Aguilar's upper back to stop everything getting tightened down But he's already hit the angle that you want to do to tighten that up if you if you ever seen someone in a who knows what they're doing in a triangle choke You don't stay In the same line as your opponent you want to turn it tightens things down So in this case Tyra his right leg would have been the one around the back and his left leg is providing the leverage So he turns to his own right. He's underhooked the leg with his right arm. He just hasn't fully broken down the posture yet. But Aguilar's not all that mindful of his right arm, which is the one trapped in the triangle. Gets a little lazy with it. So Tyra just grabs it and transitions and goes belly down with the armbar. Verbal submission, like I said. Really, really pretty stuff from Tyra. So that was your event. That was UFC and ESPN Plus 76. If you want my full report, it's in the MMA Zone of 411 Mania. Give it a read if you're so inclined. I always appreciate it. All right. Let's talk very briefly about Bellator, shall we? So in the main event of Bellator 290, the greatest heavyweight of all time, and Dana White can piss off for thinking otherwise, Fedor Emelianenko retires officially after suffering a first-round TKO loss to Ryan Bader, the stoppage was perfectly fine.
1: Um, I don't know how to talk about Fedor.
0: It's hard to put this into words. Like I've talked a little bit about my MMA journey in some respects. As a like, I came to MMA a little bit. And I I can kind of recall watching parts of, like, Griffin Bonner 1 live. My vivid first memory of MMA is watching Anderson Silva and Chris Lieben because I'd kind of been on the periphery of MMA at that enough to have formed opinions. They weren't always the most informed, but I had them. And my interest had been piqued in the sport due to some of my own, like, personal backgrounds in... I hate to say a little wrestling, a little wrestling, very little, and uh, you know, some striking arts. You know, I took karate for like. I shouldn't just say karate. That's deeply. It's not helpful to say karate because there's so many styles, and some and karate has become a catch-all term. But for about five years, I was a when I was a kid, I took American Kenpo, and I very much loved it and so i'd kind of gotten back into you know the observation space of mma and i stumbled across fedor a little bit like i didn't get to watch any of the great fedor fights live um some of this is my age and kind of what was available at the time technically uh but i was just I was not able to be as plugged into the MMA scene as I would have liked to really get to watch the big Fedor fights live. So I found him in part when I was... um, made more aware of Mirko Krokop. Because I'd seen some of his highlights, or I found some of his fights, and then... If you followed... If you even, you know, retroactively did it... um, Research on Krokop, you came across Fedor in pride because Fedor versus Krokop is still the biggest heavyweight fight ever, in my opinion like I've never been a part of live or you know, through the, of a heavyweight fight that felt like that one did. that might change in the future, but it hasn't happened yet, and it's kind of a well, wait a minute, who's this Fedor guy? I looked up Fedor, and I was uh, I was captivated watching Fedor go fight. If you've never seen Fedor in his prime, man, look up his look him up. Will not regret it. He was an athletic dynamo, a wonderful game planner. And it was it was magic to watch him. It was just magic. Watching him play with the guard of Noguera and just brutalize him with ground and pound, watching him walk down Mirko Krokop, he was... He's the best heavyweight ever. And I... I'm happy to call Stipe Miocic the best heavyweight, the most accomplished heavyweight in UFC history. Francis Ngannou is, to my way of thinking, the best heavyweight in the world right now. There's not been a heavyweight that came close to equaling what Fedor has accomplished. I mean, and bear in mind, there was a time, and Dana White at the post-fight presser for, for, like, you know, said Fedor should have retired a few years ago. I actually do agree with that. And he was never the greatest of all time, and he never really wanted to test himself and just... I try really hard not to get angry when
1: promoters lie, because it's all they do. But
0: when Fedor was fighting the best heavyweights in the world, the UFC was having Tim Sylvia versus Gan McGee. Or Tim Sylvia and Andrei Arlovsky, Part 3. Interrupted by Paul Buentello getting a title shot and all this stuff. The UFC's heavyweight division was... I apologize for profanity. The UFC's heavyweight division was ass. It just sucked. Pride had the best heavyweights in the world, bar none.
1: And Fedor was the king.
0: And yeah, were there some freak show fights? Sure. I'm not going to pretend otherwise. He also fought the best. He fought the very best. And let's not pretend, by the way, that if Fedor had signed with the UFC, like if he did, the line here, the line from the UFC and Dana White would have been, he is the best heavyweight ever. Like, this is just sour grape from Dana White. Full stop.
1: Um, yeah, and... Again, I don't know There's a
0: handful of fighters who I watch when I need to rekindle my love for MMA. Like when I'm like, "Uh, oh, god, another week. Another batch of bleh fights. Like I need to I need to remind myself what I like about this, you know?"
1: is one of the fighters I will look to
0: he's not the only again there's a few others there's certain Demetrius Johnson fights there's a handful of g s p fights um Justin Gaethje fights actually again it kind of like depends what i like you get a sense for this like what do you need but Fedor's one of those guys who I find his stuff endlessly rewatchable. I remember watching my first Fedor fight live. Again, this it might be a bit embarrassing that this is my first live one, but it was him and Tim Sylvia in Affliction. When he kind of just bulldozed Tim Sylvia. Uh, so, I'm glad he seems happy. I hope he reti- I He said he's retired. I hope it sticks. You know, I... Uh, he probably should have retired again a few years ago when he had a win in Moscow. I forget the exact one. Did he actually fight Timothy Johnson in Moscow? I for- it doesn't matter that much. Um, but this is a guy who advanced the game, especially for heavyweights in a lot of ways. And I wish him nothing but the best in retirement. So. It sucks, man. It's It's hard. You know, two weeks ago, we had you know, Shogun and Glover both go out on tough losses. Shogun's was much sadder, but such is the nature of his physical decline. You know, the number of people, I'm going to say MMA in particular here, but this is, be very clear about this. This is pretty much as true of boxing for the record. But the number of people who actually get their happy ending in MMA is... like You can count them on one hand, man.
1: Count them on one hand. number of people who get to go out on a high note. I can give you two, and that's about it. Off the top of my head. I'll give you Khabib. I'll give you George St. Pierre.
0: And... I don't even know if GSP's actually done or not. He's done with it at the UFC, but you know, it, it, it doesn't happen. Dan Henderson didn't have a graceful exit. Chuck Liddell didn't have a graceful exit. I mean, Tito Ortiz didn't have a graceful exit. Randy Couture didn't have a graceful exit. Rampage Jackson got real fat, and he's still out there going, oh, there was this guy from the season of The Ultimate Fighter that I bullied that I'd like to fight. No one cares. And Rashad Evans went out on a pretty big losing streak, if memory serves. Like,
1: we can go down the list. I don't want to,
0: but we could. Like, look what Anderson Silva's doing at the moment. Like, he didn't have a great exit from the U- from MMA. I mean, got stopped by Uriah Hall. Not a great exit, man. I had a Facebook memory come up the other day about Anderson Silva. It was after he'd beaten Nick Diaz. I said, you know, he should probably retire. Like, this guy used to smoke the best in the world. Now he's going five rounds with Nick Diaz. That's not me saying anything bad about Nick Diaz so much as like the best version of Anderson against Nick Diaz. The fight doesn't look like the one we got. And he's still out. You know, Chris, Chris Weidman's not looking to have a good exit. Like, the last time we saw him, his leg got snapped. His,
1: I'm worried about how that story ends. I've become very worried about it, actually. Yeah, I don't care who you pick, man. The sport doesn't give you a graceful exit. I'm not saying never, but you can count those. You can probably count those on one hand. And uh, it it just sucks. It just really sucks. So yeah.
0: Um. Elsewhere on that card, I'm gonna say a couple of things about this Bellator card. This is Bell it was again, it was Bellator 290. It aired on CBS and whatnot, so. Um i want to give a couple of specific shout-outs. On the prelims, uh, Lorenz Larkin, good grief, with an elbow from hell. Uh scored a beautiful knockout. Look that one up if you didn't see it. Beautiful knockout win for Lorenz Larkin. And maybe the most underappreciated major champion in MMA, the Bellator middleweight champion, Johnny Eblen, with a just mauling of his opponent, uh, out wrestled, he wrestled him to death very quickly. I mean, it, t- it took a, it went all five rounds, but you knew very, you knew pretty darn quick
1: how this one was going. Um,
0: Johnny again. Eblin does not get the credit he should. Not entirely sure why. I mean, he blanked Gegard Musasi, and look. I understand that the existence of Gegard Musasi leads leads to this weird di- like divergence of fans, where you have the Musasi supporters who. No, he's one of the best ever. He's a pound-for-pound all-timer, and blah, 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 Musasi's great. And these people get their backs up in a hurry. So it leads to, because it's MMA, some trolling of them. I mean, I'm going to reference him again, but I I always get a kick out of Jack Slack going, you know, noted regional champion, Gegard Musasi. Um because obviously Musasi's better than that and we all know it but it's easy to kind of tweak the nose of the Musashi club and Eblen utterly blanked him and was very impressive doing so he utterly out wrestled this guy he won i think i think there was one scorecard that was 5-0 for Eblen the other two were four, were 4 to 1 for Eblen he is a relentless powerful wrestler and i'm going to say this I'm not saying that if he were to fight Michelle Pereira tomorrow, that Pereira couldn't win. I am saying that Johnny Eblen stylistically gives Pereira a lot of problems. I'm just throwing that out there, man. Like, Pereira's in this weird position where I don't think I'm ever going to be surprised if he wins a fight. He's Because his skill set is devastating. But there's a number of people in the well in the middleweight division worldwide, in UFC or elsewhere, that I would pick to beat him. I'm not saying he couldn't beat Johnny Eblen. I'm saying Eblen gives him problems. And you're a fool to think otherwise. So, wanted to give Eblen the credit that he is due. Because uh, he's not getting a lot of it, and he's putting in good work. I think that was all I had from the Bellator card. Yeah. All right, let's move on. Uh, UFC 284. This coming Saturday, UFC is in Perth, Australia. And this is a very this is a good card, man. Like, this is just a good card on paper. So... Let's talk for just a minute here about the promotion around this, because this got a few bit of waves. And before I talk about the fights in particular, I think this deserves a little discussion. So Islam Makashev, I believe in an interview, said that you know the promotion for UFC 284 hadn't been great. And that got, that got some discussion started, and I'd like to kind of weigh in here. Has the promotion for UFC 284 been great? No, I don't think it has. Now, that comes with a couple of caveats.
1: One is, can we be
0: honest about something for a second about the UFC's promotion? They're not great at giving, at promoting big fights.
1: I'm not saying they suck at it. I'm saying...
0: How do I say this? The UFC, by their own admission, is more about giving you a platform than about promoting you, right? Which means certain fighters and certain personalities are able to capitalize on it more than others, whether that's earned or not. They kind of the the UFC system favors them in that way. This is a fight between the two best fighters in the world pound for pound. You have two of the longest winning streaks in UFC history colliding here. You have, this is one of the best, like, combined records of two fighters fighting for a UFC title ever. I mean, Bakashev's record is, he's
1: 23-1. and one.
0: He is, He's only had one loss in the UFC. Uh, he's on a long winning streak. He's on a, what, 10-fight winning streak? Nine? Six, seven, eight, nine, 11. Sorry. He's on an 11-fight winning streak. He has finished his last four or five? He's finished his last five opponents.
1: And he's fighting Volkanovski, who is
0: 25 and one. So. A combined record between these two gentlemen of 48
1: and 2. Volkanovski has never lost in the UFC. He's on a 20-what? Oh, hello. Three wins, then has lost. Hasn't lost since.
0: So he's on like a 22-fight winning streak. Again, undefeated in the UFC. Never lost at featherweight. Never lost at lightweight. His only loss, I've mentioned this before, is at welterweight.
1: Uh, like, in fact,
0: his welterweight record is 4-1 and one before he moved to lightweight and then featherweight and kind of has moved a little bit between those two. Undefeated at the weight class of which he is champion and undefeated at lightweight including a couple of wins He has lightweight wins in the UFC, right? His debut was at lightweight he dropped. Yeah, then he had a catchweight fight because of a short-notice opponent shift Yeah, he's got lightweight wins in the UFC Has beaten dude.
1: He beat in order
0: Chad Mendez, two-time title challenger. One of the best featherweights of his era when he was at the best. Jose Aldo, greatest featherweight of all time, general rule. Max Holloway, twice. The be- Brian Ortega, a sadly lopsided affair with Chan Sung Jung, and then gives Max Holloway the most definitive loss of his career.
1: Like, that's just his last handful of fights. These two guys
0: are on a collision course. And the UFC promotional material has been not really behind this. In fact, if you... I don't know that this is still true as I record this. But last week, there was a period of time when if you looked at the UFC's official Twitter account, of their last, like, 50-some-odd tweets,
1: one was about UFC 284. One. That's
0: just not great promotional work. Sorry. In fact, there were more, there was more official UFC content about power slap than there was about the pay-per-view. Which is pathetic to be honest now there is a flip side to this that needs to be acknowledged so let's take a second and acknowledge the flip side of this marketing is not a magic wand stealing like we say frequently the ufc needs to do a better job promoting people i'm not saying the ufc is always doing everything in their power i am saying it's not like, you they can't flip a switch right like, there's some people that just don't resonate. Uh, I mean, look, I love Demetrius Johnson. Another one of my favorite fighters. Love the guy. When we say, th- when you say the UFC didn't go out of their way to promote him, I'm n- again, I'm not saying that the UFC uh, was always the most fair to him. Because most of what Demetrius Johnson does as a personality doesn't really conform to how the UFC wanted to promote fighters at the time and largely still does. And that led to friction. But there is an argument to be made, and I think it's a fair one, that it's not like the UFC tried to hide Demetrius Johnson under a rock. Like, they they put commercials for his stuff on Fox. He had a title defense on Fox. He headlined pay-per-views there was there was a disconnect between Demetrius Johnson and the fan base that no amount of money from the UFC was necessarily going to bridge. And sometimes that's just the case. Now, when it comes to 284, I'm happy to say that I think the UFC has not done a great job building anticipation for this fight. In fact, at the post-fight presser for uh, UFC on ESPN Plus 76, Dana White tried to hype the fight a little bit and apparently forgot the name of Islam Makashev. Now, I'll give Dana a little bit of credit. Like, this was 1.30 or so in the morning in Vegas when he was doing this. Most people aren't at their best at 1.30 in the morning. But still, a bad
1: look. A real bad look.
0: Um, But the, the counterpoint to this is you know, what has Islam Makashev, in particular, for example, done to really kind of... You do have to pull some of your own weight here. The UFC machine isn't magic. You know, what? how much is Islam doing to get out there and promote this himself? Now, lest this turn into something weird... This is true of all combat sports. There is a degree of this that comes down to the fighter doing stuff. This is true of boxing, too, by the way. Bob Arum, Don King, uh, Eddie Hearn. uh, Name whatever promoter you want. There is a degree of the promotion that is somewhat reliant on the fighter because this is the person people want to hear from. This is the person people are going to get invested in. This is the person people are spending their money on. How much media has Islam Makashev really done for this? I saw his bit criticizing the promotion. The only other thing I've seen from him recently was uh, him and Alexander Volkanovsky both being on, I think there was a split-screen interview with Daniel Cormier. And that's kind of it. Volkanovsky's been out there kind of doing the rounds. He's been doing the interviews. He's been getting him. You're putting forth the promotional effort that most people would like to see, whereas Makashev hasn't, really. And a lot of that's going to be on Makashev, rather than the UFC. Like, they, they can't make him go do media. You know, they can say you have to, I believe the contractual language is you have to do a reasonable... Amount of like the fighter is required to do a reasonable amount of media promoting the fight. What's reasonable? Well, who knows? Uh, but he's you know, he's not been a very forward facing part of the promotional effort here. And the UFC is you know, they again, they can't work miracles, they can't, they're not magicians, so. There is a degree of this that needs to be brought up. Like, okay, has the UFC done the best job on their end of things? No, it's fair to say they haven't. Has Islam Makashev really put forth his best effort to try and get things out there to promote the fight? I think it's safe to say he hasn't either. Let's be fair here. Because what, did the, what has the UFC done for this? Now, we're entering the fight week promotion, which is kind of the only time the UFC cares about anything. But some days, man, it feels like the most days feels like the UFC is kind of laying track in front of the train sometimes, doesn't it? So what's the UFC done for their promotional effort for this? Well, thus far, they've done what they always do. There's a free fight out for each of the competitors in the main event. The UFC has released free on their YouTube channel. Go watch this if you want. The third fight between Max Holloway and Alexander Volkanovsky. And the title fight between Isla Makashev and Charles Oliveira. Now, they always do this. Both of those fights seem to be, both of those videos on YouTube are doing well enough. I think they're both over a million views. In fact, let me check this. Because I can actually look this up in real time. UFC's YouTube
1: channel. Do this. So, what do we got down here? Okay,
0: free fights. That's Derek Lewis. That's stuff for Lewis and Hardy, um, both of which. So, for the fight between Derek between Curtis between Derek Lewis and Sergey Spivak, they released uh, Derek Lewis versus Curtis Blades and Sergey Spivak versus Greg Hardy. Lewis and Blades sitting at 374,000 views. Uh, Hardy and Spivak sitting at 178. Not great numbers for the UFC. Like, don't get me wrong. For the UFC, not the best numbers. Um, yeah, okay. At the moment, um, Volkanovski versus Max Holloway free fight has 1.5 million views. Makasha and Oliveira has 3.3 3 million views. Those are very good numbers. Uh, So, again, this is what the UFC does. So, those have been out for a couple of weeks now. They will go away after the pay-per-view. This is the cycle. But that's what they do. Um, Do we have the, like, embedded stuff? At the moment, we have um, countdowns. The UFC countdown thing. So the countdown to UFC 284 on YouTube sitting at 354,000 views that came about 13 hours ago as of this recording. Uh, broken up specifically between Makasha Volkanovski and Rodriguez and Emmett, which is the co-main event. Get to the fights in a minute. The uh, the Makasha Volkanovski component of that is sitting at 625,000 views. Emmett and Rodriguez is 35,000. Like the interest, in theory, is on the main event. That's not me knocking the co-main event. I think it's a fine enough fight. But if there's a major criticism to be levied here, allow me to levy the following one. The UFC isn't great about promoting big fights and about generating big fight feel because their promotional structure has become incredibly rigid and formulaic. For a pay-per-view, Two weeks out, you'll get a free fight for each of the main eventers. For fight nights, it's the week before for each of the main eventers. And these go up on their YouTube channel, and if you're subscribed to that or you know how to find it, you can find them there. They put out, okay, here's our countdown special, and it's on YouTube, and it'll air on ESPN+, and blah, blah, blah. And we'll put together a, you know, TV spot, uh, you know, that you might see. Haven't seen, I haven't really seen one for UFC 284, but I'm sure it exists. And this is just what they do. And it doesn't matter how big the event is. It doesn't matter if it's Volkanovski and Makashev or if it's underwhelming pay-per-view. Wasn't there one that was main evented by, like,
1: Wow, it was Rashad Evans and who the heck was he fighting? Rashad Evans and Dana Henderson? Because uh, that
0: was, hang on, that was Fox. Yeah, UFC 161. Got the same promotion. Uh, granted, this was 2013. Got the same promotional treatment, more or less, that Mikashev and Volkanovski are getting.
1: The UFC doesn't care. If it's a big
0: fight or not, you know, has there been a meaningful distinction But in the promotional effort between UFC 283, put together at the last, not the literal last minute because they've had to do that, but came together in a hurry, Glover Teixeira and Jamal Hill, and 284, which came together not as quickly and features the two best fighters that you have on your roster pound for pound by your own rankings. There should be a promotional distinction here should there not the u f c doesn't seem to think so so the u f c machine is it's weird because in some respects it's very nimble like they the u f c can get together fights in a hurry if fights fall apart they are very good about that they are very quick at finding replacements they are very like there's a lot of mobility and dynamism behind the scenes in the UFC, there's not a lot of mobility and dynamism in their promotional efforts around each individual event. That's all just rinse and repeat. That's all kind of the same thing. When they actually put forth effort, they can generate some really cool stuff. When they're just going through the motions, they're visibly just going through the motions, and I don't think it's unfair to say for UFC two eighty four, they're just going through the motions. And frankly, it's a card, especially a main a main event, that deserves better. And I don't think it's unfair to say that. Flip side, it's not like Mikashev's doing himself any favors with the amount of effort he's putting forth on the promotional side of things. Volkanovsky's putting out more again, Volkanovsky's doing more heavy lifting, to the extent that either of them is doing heavy lifting in that respect, so. Take that for what it's worth. Alright, moving on to the fights themselves. Main event, talked a little bit about it. Islam Makhachev versus Alexander Volkanovsky. I can't wait for this fight. I have no idea what's going to happen. <laughs> oh, the size difference is real.
1: I'm... And... Size is not the
0: most important factor in a fight. However... The closer you come in, there's two times when, there's two instances where that's not true. Like My general rule of thumb, and yours too, should be size, not not the most important thing. It becomes the most important thing with a couple of other caveats. One, that your size disparity is not enormous. Alright?
1: When I say enormous, I mean real big.
0: You might have seen um, there's video of this. It's on the internet. You can find Dustin Poirier rolling good-naturedly with Brian Shaw, who is four times world's strongest man.
1: Uh,
0: now the size disparity there is so great. Like, let's not d- the skill. Disc- d- it is not in question here. Dustin Poirier is a much more skilled fighter. And Brian Shaw. Brian Shaw's not devoted to my knowledge any extent of his time to actually training to fight. It's not what he does. He's a strongman competitor.
1: However, Dustin Poirier
0: is what? 5'8? Don't mean that in unkindly. I'm about to make a point here. Uh, Dustin Poirier is. He's 5'9. So. Oh. Smaller than average relative to the average American, but he's a a decent-sized lightweight. He's 5'9". Brian Shaw is, if memory serves, 6'8". I'm
1: going to confirm that. Yeah, he's
0: 6'8". So Brian Shaw is almost a foot taller. Dustin Poirier walks around. I think he said
1: 170-ish. Shaw weighs around 440 pounds.
0: That's kind of on the high end, but like the dude's usually over 400 pounds, like three, like very high 300s to 400s of mostly muscle. The size difference in that it, in that case is so extreme that the skill gap Is somewhat nullified now you need that kind of gap mind you for size to become the most important thing but if you're fighting someone who's about a foot taller than you are and is you know 200 some odd pounds heavier suddenly that's kind of all that matters here's the other time size becomes the most important thing when everything else is equal
1: the more equal your skill set is, the more
0: important size becomes. Now again, you will find smaller guys messing up larger guys. And there's that famous video of um Roger Huerta, who was a lightweight in the UFC, so he can walks around probably in the 170s. After he had washed out of the UFC, Defending a the girlfriend of an offensive lineman uh, for the Atlanta Falcons who was attacking her. I don't know if you've seen too many offensive linemen in the NFL. Those are big men. And Roger Ware to beat the crap out of him.
1: The skill gap was, again, big enough skill gap,
0: not quite as big a deal to a certain point. But the closer... And again, like, you'll, Mike Tyson was a small heavyweight. The skill was not equal. Right? A lot of the guys he beat, not saying they were bad heavyweights. But the skill was not equal, so the fact that Tyson was not a large heavyweight didn't really matter. Didn't matter as much. When you get, the closer that skill gap gets, the more the size does become a factor. So. The fact that these two, Mikashev and Volkanovsky, are in all probability very similar in skill, the size becomes a factor. Now, again, the biggest factor, I, I don't think it'll be the biggest factor. I tend to think if either of them finds a, skill di- a point of skill difference, that's going to be more important than the size. The size also might play into that in various ways. Like if Makashev has a wrestling advantage, the fact that he's bigger is going to exacerbate it. On the feet, Volkanovsky is the better striker. This should not be a comp- this should not be a controversial take. Makashev's Mikoshev, defense is very good. It is very hard to hit him. And that's gonna is going to test that in ways that others have not. Charles Oliveira is Very offensive-minded, but he's also—I don't mean this unkindly—he's reliably offensive, like predictably. Not that everything he does is predictable moment moment to moment, but in general, there's a predictability there that Makashev and his team were able to really dial in on and punish him for. Volkanovski is a much more dynamic striker. He's a much more diverse striker. He can strike going forwards. He can strike going backwards. He fakes, and he faints a lot, and his actual attack... One of the things about faking and fainting, guys. If your faint doesn't look like your actual attack, it doesn't work. This is th- something people get wrong a
1: lot. Your fake needs to look like your
0: attack. If it doesn't, it doesn't work. Again, if it doesn't, it doesn't work. If If it becomes obvious when you're faking and when you're attacking because they don't look the same, whether that's shoulder position, weight distribution, hip, like whatever it happens to be. If your opponent can look at you faking and go, you're faking, I'm not going to flinch. I'm I'm not going to react, I don't need to. Because I've seen you throw the attack that you're faking and your attack looks different. You're not accomplishing anything. Volkanovski's feints look exactly like his attacks.
1: And that's,
0: that's a very difficult thing to pull off. So I need to give him credit for that. Makash have a lot more, again, he's a lot more defensive in his striking. Let's say it's not there, but it's more defensive. And he's, dude, his defensive stats are ridiculous. He completely shut down Charles Oliveira, who's kind of a dynamo on offense. Oliveira landed almost nothing on him. He gets hit, I think it's less than once a minute. My, that might have changed, but it's very close to that. That's an abs- that's an absurd stat. I imagine Volkanovsky's going to test that in ways that others haven't because he's very thoughtful about his offense. He's very methodical about it. And he's very accurate. Oliveira, a bit more again, kind of throws stuff at you. Not quite like Justin Gage, he just throws stuff at you, but eh, you should understand the distinction there. The wrestling, the clinch is, to me is more interesting than the actual, like, work on the mat. Um, how they fight in the clinch is going to be very interesting, because Volkanovsky can fence-wrestle. Can he fence-wrestle on the level of Makashev? Well, that remains to be seen, but he's not going to be out of sorts there. So, on the ground, like, if Makashev gets on top, his control is just absurd. And he's very methodical, he's very good about passing, and he's very good about just stopping you from doing anything. Volkanovsky, to be successful, has to not allow Makashev to settle. Makashev is going to get your butt to the mat at some point. You can't let him establish control from there. Like that's the f- That's the battle. As much as stopping him from ever getting you down... Not saying you should concede that at every point, but statistically speaking, your back is going to hit the mat at some point. There's a lot of guys who were very good about stopping takedowns. But once you broke through that barrier, they struggled to get up. And then there's other guys who are the reverse is true. Like, okay, you, can, you might take them down with a degree of regularity, but they're real good about getting up. And you having to take them down over and over again is sapping on your cardio. I hate to do this, because this is not just a striker versus grappler match. That's a deep, deep oversimplification. The more time it's spent on the feet, the more I think it favors Volkanovsky. Whereas the more time they spend in close proximity, I think the more it favors Mikashev. I, like I said, man, I have no idea what's going to happen here. If you've listened to Volkanovsky talk and had depending on how much you want to believe him, like he's packed on a lot of muscle for this. He wants to be, you know, low center of gravity, brick wall, try and stop Mikashev when they get close. That might be successful. is also used to fighting bigger men. So I don't so elements of the length as it relates to the size difference he's gonna be used to dealing with. I don't know the last time I
1: picked against either of these guys. I really don't. It's been that long. I might not ever have, come to think of it.
0: Oh, did I, I might have picked Volkan... I might have picked Jose Aldo over Volkanovski. I'd have to double-check. A long time ago. But it's been since around then.
1: Like years. And
0: I don't know that I've ever picked against Makashev in the UFC. I don't think I have. But I really don't know. I would not bet on
1: this fight. As far as where I lean, because I have to make a pick. I'm going to lean a little bit towards Makashev, I think. Just a bit. And like I said, it's very
0: slight. I would not bet on this fight. Because they're both extremely talented fighters. So, but I'm going to lean towards Makashev. Kind of have, like, I don't even have a rooting interest here. Like, I don't dislike Makashev. He's kind of a goofball, and I mean that as a compliment. You know, if you've seen some of his stuff on social media, he's he's kind of a goofball. Um. I like Volkanovski a lot, so I don't have a rooting interest in that respect. I mean, I was maybe rooting for Volkanovski because, dude, if he does this, just take half a second here. If Volkanovski beats Islam Makhachev, that's going to be one of the more impress—like that's more impressive to me than anything Conor McGregor did. If Volkanovski will have won the featherweight title, defended it several times, he's got, what, four defenses? It was Max, Ortega, Jung, and then Max again. Yeah, he's got four defenses of the featherweight title. If he goes up and fights the best lightweight in the world, which I think Islam Makashev is, and beats him, like, McGregor beating Eddie Alvarez is nothing to sneeze at. Eddie Alvarez is in all, one of the all-time better lightweights. I'm not sure where exactly I would rate him. But Alvarez is a champion everywhere, pretty much. I don't think he's won a belt in one yet, but... That was nothing to sneeze at. But I think beating Islam Makashev is better than beating Eddie Alvarez. And I don't think that should be a controversial take. Main event, can't wait for it. Genuinely excited. Uh looking forward to that one co-main event for the interim featherweight championship i understand this because if volkanovsky wins he can't defend both belts i know he's kind of said he'd like to i don't think you can they're like you've got two very good divisions you can try to be busy and i understand it but they the ufc needs both belts in rotation for their schedule it's just and if he wins, he might vacate the featherweight belt, in which case you promote whoever wins this to champion. The division moves on, and I think we're all okay with that. So, for the feather, interim featherweight title, Josh Emmett and Yair Rodriguez. Um, I don't know about this one. See, Rodriguez, coming off a win, that weird win over Brian Ortega where there was a shoulder injury, and, I mean, you couldn't he, he was doing well in that fight for the, as long as it lasted. And I don't mean to imply that the shoulder injury that Brian Ortega suffered was not, at least partially caused by what Rodriguez was doing. He was going for an arm bar. It wasn't like Ortega missed a punch and the shoulder just fell out of socket. Like, there was contact going on here. Like it was a thing. At the same time, like, I don't necessarily feel like that the way that first round had gone was terribly indicative of how that fight would have necessarily gone had it continued. Before that, a legitimate win, for the record. Like I'm not dumping on that. I'm saying, like, what did it tell us about Yaya Rodriguez? I don't know. Before that, lost the fight to Max Holloway that was more competitive than I think most of us imagined it would be. I mean, before, like, before that, his last loss was, what, the Edgar fight? I mean, Edgar beat the crap out of him, but those were his only losses in the UFC. You know, Frankie Edgar and Max Holloway. Now, there's a degree of... Uh, I'm, I'm not going to say, like, hand-holding in the matchmaking, because that would be a wild
1: overstatement. But they've
0: not done the worst job. And he's been in some wars... But, you know, they spent a long time with him. Like he he was losing that fight with Chan Sung Jung till the literal last second when he got that um, elbow knockout. And then he had the two fights with Jeremy Stevens that just ate up a lot of time. He was out for all of 2020. You know, he had some of the USADA issues. Like, there's stuff there. But I've been probably unfairly harsh to Rodriguez for a while. He was kind of a meme fighter for a long time in terms of how he chose to fight. He seems to have settled a lot of that down. Unfortunately for him, he's fighting a very tough stylistic opponent in Josh Emmett. Emmett's only losses in the UFC. He had a split decision loss to Des Green. It was at lightweight. Then won a couple of featherweight fights before, God, Jeremy Stevens ruined him. Or could have. Like, Jeremy Stevens broke his face. And I don't mean that as, like, literally broke his face in several places. Like, the injury report for Josh Emmett after that fight set, read like he'd been in a car wreck. But he persevered. He came back. He was losing to Michael Johnson before scoring a third-round knockout. He beat Mirsad Bekdic. He beat Shane Burgos. That was a fun fight. Beats Dan Ige. I thought he lost to Calvin Cater. I'm going to be honest. I'm not saying there's no case for Josh Emmett in that fight. I'm saying I thought Cater won. If Emmett chooses to use his wrestling intelligently, he can win this fight. Rodriguez is high energy, but he does fade. Not the worst in the world, but if you can get out of the first round with him, things settle a bit. He's very kick-heavy, and he kicks hard, so he should be. Emmett's compact. Emmett has good punching power, and Rodriguez doesn't have the best defense in the world. You can make a case for either guy winning this one. I actually think I'm going to lean towards Emmett. I think he's a smart enough fighter to fight Rodriguez in a way that will drain him enough in the first to then start using his wrestling going forward and I think he can beat Rodriguez that way. It's my hunch. Rodriguez could catch him. He's a wild man, and he again, he's got power. So not going to be shocked if Rodriguez wins by any stretch of the imagination. But I will lean towards Emmett. Welterweights. Poor Jack Della Madalena, man. Um, still working off that twelve and twelve contract off the contender series. Three first round stoppages. He's on a 13-fight winning streak. He's one of the better prospects at welterweight in the world. Dude, he beat up Danny Roberts' last time out. A slick fighter, a good boxer, pretty good kicker. Goes upstairs, goes downstairs. Just Jack Della Maddalena is great. And he's still fighting off again, that kind of crappy contender series contract, <laughs> I think. Anyway, he's fighting Randy Brown. Um, Brown's on a four-fight winning streak. One of the better runs of his UFC time. In fact, the best. Uh, he's beaten. Who's he beaten? Alex Oliveira, Jade Gooden, Chaos Williams, and Francisco Trinaldo. I, and I don't dislike Randy Brown, but I have no reason to pick against Della Maddalena here, and I would need one. Uh, heavyweights. God help us. Justin Toffa and Parker Porter. This seems like a setup fight for Toffa. Who's had some pretty big ups and downs. Coming off a win, though, he beat Harry Hunsucker. He missed weight for that though. First heavyweight ever to miss weight in the UFC, Justin Toffa. Um Porter is. He exists. He's got a three and two UFC record. Losses to Chris Dawkus and Jailton Almeida, he's kind of here more to lose, and I imagine he will. Light heavyweights Jimmy Crute and Alonzo Menafield. Uh, I don't dislike Jimmy Crute, but he's in a rough spot now. His UFC record is decent, at mm, three and three, wins over Paul Craig, Sam Alvey, sorry, four and three. Uh, Mikhail Oluksajic, that was a good win. Uh, knocked out Modestis Pekowskis. Has the loss to Nisha Serkinov? That hurt him. His last two fights are both losses. He had the weird fight with Anthony Smith where like, both guys were doing good work and it, he just got hurt on a calf kick. And it was very apparent that if this first round ends, they're not going to let him back out because his legs messed up. So he threw everything but the kitchen sink at Anthony Smith trying to get him out of there and had a good round, but couldn't stand to answer the bell and had to be stopped. Then he fought Jamal Hill and got knocked out in less than 50 seconds. Now, Jamal Hill, of course, the current light heavyweight champion for the UFC. So that's not the worst loss to have, but it still ain't great. Um, Menafield On a two fight winning streak. Two finishes, four and one in his last five, like he's on a decent enough run. um this is not a gimme fight for crout. Am I gonna pick Menafield? I think I am like i'm again another close one from to my way of thinking uh Kroot could very could very much win this, but Menafield's got power, and crout's chin might be a little compromised. So that's your main card. It's a pretty good pay-per-view card. That, that main event, man. like Those top two fights are solid. That main event is just... Can't wait. Please hold together. On the prelims, Tyson Pedro fights Modestus Pekauskas. Tyson Pedro should be in a much better position than he is, but he made stupid... That man made some really, really dumb decisions when he fought both Ovin St. Prue and Mauricio Shogun, who, uh, in 2018, he could have won both of those. Probably should have, but Again, bad decisions. That said, he took a few years off, came back, and has beaten Ike Villanueva and Harry Hunsucker. Heck, um, his last win was that pay-per-view in Salt Lake when he There's a pretty hefty Polynesian population, and he apparently had some family in attendance. They treated him very well. Like, the crowd treated him well. Uh, and he's fighting Modestus Bukowskis, who is coming back to the UFC. Like, he went 1-3 and three in the UFC his first time through, three losses in a row. Wins a couple of fights outside of the promotion he's being brought back in here. He's here to lose. And I think Pedro beats him. Uh, featherweight, Josh Koulibau and Melsic Bagdasarian. Koulibau has only lost to Jalen Turner in the UFC, and that was at featherweight. Uh, at Lightweight, rather. At featherweight, he's never lost. He had a draw with Charles Jordan, but he's won his last two fights. Uh, Bagdasarian, by contrast. On a seven fight winning streak. Three wins in the UFC. Double check about who this guy is. Okay, yeah, this is this is one of Edmund's boys. How many fights has he had in the UFC? He's had three. Sorry, two. In the contender series win, two wins in the UFC. He's probably do another win before the wheels fall off. That tends to be about the length of time you get out of uh, out of your association with Edmund Tarverdian. So unless he's moved since his last fight, Koulibal might win this, for the record. Like, I'm not I'm not saying it's impossible, but my hunch is Melsic Bagdasarian gets this win and then the wheels fall off. Because again, that's kind of the pattern. Like Edmund Tarverian's guys tend to have a lot of natural ability. And they get pretty far on that, but once a- you actually need coaching from him, once you need adjustments, once you need you know tactics and whatnot, it falls apart because he's not good at delivering those. At flyweight, Shannon Ross will fight Cledson Rodriguez. Probably Rodriguez. Lightweight, Jamie Malarkey and Francis Prado. Mr. Malarkey... Uh, three and three in the UFC. Coming off a win over Michael Johnson, that was a fun fight. This is probably malarkey. He's a decent fighter. Early prelims: Jack Jenkins and Don Shaenus. Do I know that name? Let me pull him up. Pull up, Mr. Shaenus, on Tapology here. I need a look at this guy. He is 12-4. and four. He's fought in the UFC at least once. Yeah, lost to Sadiq Youssef. He had a good winning streak going before that. Yeah, he got choked out by... Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, there was a... Okay, I remember. I remember why I know that guy. Um, Jenkins is the Aussie in this equation. He is 10-2. and two. Coming off a Contender Series win. On a decent winning streak overall of, what, 6, 7? A seven. Um, actually I actually think I'm going to lean towards Jenkins there, but don't quote me on that one. Uh, strawweight fight. Loma, Luke, Bunmi and Elise Reed. Reed. Coming off a win. Double check Reed. Okay. Um, she's two and two in the UFC. Coming off like I said, coming off a win. Uh Loma is four and two overall in the UFC. She's also coming off a win. We might get some fun out of this one. Reed's a bit bigger. I think Lukbunmi's ideal weight is actually Adam weight. Um Reed's got a good kicking game, but she likes to be at distance, whereas Lukbunmi is much more in the Muay Thai style. I think I'm going to lean towards bon me. I think when Reed gets pressured into closer quarters, things are going to start going wrong for her. Featherweight, Shang Young and Blake Bidder Builder. Hang on. Quick look at Young. Young has not had the best run of it in the UFC. He's been out of action since March of 01 when he lost to Omar Morales. He got knocked out by Ludovic Klein before that. I mean, his UFC record is 2-3. and three. His debut was against Volkanovski, and that went poorly for him. Beat Rolando D, beat Austin Arnett. Neither of whom are in the UFC anymore.
1: But he is fighting...
0: Mr. Builder. The I and the L when they're close together, man. I just need a bigger font for that. guess I'm getting old. Um, Builder is 7-0-1, coming off a Contender Series win. The UFC likes to give them soft is the wrong word. It's not a soft fight, but it's winnable. And kicking everything off up at Lightweight, Zabaira, Tohugov and Elvez Brenner. Brennerer? Brenner, I think it's Brenner. Um, Tohugov was nominally a featherweight. Um, he's been out of action since October of 2021. He's had issues making weight at featherweight, had issues gassing out at featherweight, so fighting at lightweight makes a degree of sense. Uh, he was supposed to be fighting Joel Alvarez here. That would have been a much tougher fight for him. I kind of rate Alva, um, Joel Alvarez pretty highly. Um, are taking this fight on, again, somewhat short notice. He is Brazilian. He is 13-3. On a two-fight winning streak, I, I'm okay picking Tahugov here. Uh, the question again kind of comes down to whether and how Tukhugov looks up at... Um, wait, is this lightweight or featherweight? I think this was... Sup- Alvarez... Hang on, I need to confirm this, because Alvarez is normally... Yeah, he's normally a lightweight, and in fact had missed weight in a couple of his previous... Um lightweight fights. So I doubt Alvarez was cutting down to featherweight. This was probably Tahugov moving up to lightweight and fighting just again a a real would have been a really tough matchup for him. So I my hunch is this is a lightweight fight and it's kind of erroneously listed here on topology. Um curious to see how that goes. Uh
1: how that goes for Tekugov
0: but There we are. I have no problem picking him. So that is UFC 284. Saturday, I'll be covering it. MMAZona411mania.com. You all know the drill as far as that goes. Please tune in. You can follow along. I appreciate it. All right. Moving on. The UFC has a new sponsor. In fact, the red corner and the blue corner are being renamed. To the prime rehydra- the prime hydration zones, so the u f c has a deal with the um sport drink i guess would be the classification the the drink that um logan paul and k s i have put out they call it prime. Um there's a deal in place for that, so the red corner and the blue corner are now the prime hydration zone hydration recovery zones never a stupid name rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Bruce buffer, the lights go down. he's introducing let's do the main event for two eighty four and now fighting out of this prime hydration recovery zone apparently that I mean, look. I'm not an expert on the best recovery drinks in the world. All I'm going to say on the subject is most of the people I know who do pay a lot of attention to this stuff don't think too highly of Prime. <laughs> for whatever that's worth. Uh, like especially, Apparently it's especially true Like after you've cut weight. It's not good for that. So, you know, maybe it's fine if you're, you know, what you drink when you're trying to do stuff like this matters a great deal, actually. Like, you, know, you shouldn't over drink Gatorade because of everything that's in it. It's designed to replace stuff you lose when you sweat. So if you're doing very, like, cardio intensive stuff, um, you know, what's the way I heard this phrased? You know, people who start going to the gym think that you know, maybe I'm trying to get in shape, I'm trying to build some muscle, maybe I should drink Gatorade. No, if you're, you know, Michael Jordan, running up and down a basketball court 200 times, sweating your life away, yeah, Gatorade's real good for for, for that, real good. If you're in the gym and you're, you're doing more lifting heavy for muscle mass growth or whatnot, Gatorade's not great for that. You've done you know what these things are for. I'm Prime, apparently not great again. The people, the people I know who care more about that stuff than I do have told me that. So this is purely a polemic opinion, but there's a there's a lot of people who again pay attention to this stuff on YouTube. A lot of people in the fitness community and whatnot again who are real big into this who have kind of dunked on Prime. So take that for what it's worth. I don't obj- I think it's stupid the way they've implemented this, but lest this come across as me saying I don't like the UFC making more money. Like no, I'm I'm fine with the UFC making a lot of money. The hypocrisy gets to me, and the fact that the fighters get nothing, the, that 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 is what gets to me. You know, I remember a time when fighters had sponsors. And I remember when the UFC said you were no longer allowed to have sponsors, you must wear Reebok. And it must look like this. I remember. Part of the logic behind that from the UFC, their public-facing logic. We don't want this to look like NASCAR. We want this to look professional. We want this to look clean-cut. And there's some people out there who agreed with that sentiment. And I... I'm not saying they're operating in bad faith, and I'm not even insulting their intelligence, but I pretty vehemently disagree. And by the way, if we're the UFC saying this, please don't look at the octagon canvas. But no, do look at the octagon canvas, because we sell every square inch of that thing. Here's Metro in the middle, and here's Howlerhead, and here's a movie, and here's here's this, and... Here's on the corner. Here's on the post that we, you know, screw the octagon fence into. And there's that new event. And there's that video game. And there's and here's the Harley Davidson prep point. And... and it goes on and on and on. And lest again, I don't object to this in the kind of general in the like, how dare they? No, I don't hate it. No, sorry. I don't object to it on like a moral level. I think it's stupid aesthetically and it annoys me as a consumer, but I get it and I'm, and that's fine. But to pretend that we don't want fighters to have sponsors on their shorts, and we don't want fight banners, which are up for exactly as long as it takes them to be introduced, and we don't want any of that because we think it looks gaudy, to then take a look at the mat... The octagon surface. And to hear commentary, you know, the third round is brought to you by... Who does it now? It used to be P3 because three third round. uh, And now I think it's like proper number 12. So we will monetize every single... We'll monetize every round. We'll monetize our replays. We'll monetize a prep point. We'll monetize the corner. We'll monetize... We'll take more money, as much money from the Fighters as we possibly can. Oh, and by the way, Fighters, screw you. No, you don't get any of this. Oh, no. Oh, wait, sorry. By the way, um, all of your walkouts are now going to have the Crypto.com logo, because we're getting paid for that, not you, us. And you must wear the shoes that The Rock makes. No, we get paid for that, not you. But you have to wear them. This is what bugs me. Like, that's the stuff that annoys me. And... So... Good on, you know, also amusing, by the way. Jake Paul continuing to be a very vocal critic of the UFC and their pay structure and everything. And here is his brother, who he collaborates with frequently, giving the UFC money that the fighters will see none of.
1: Yeah, just just
0: throwing that out there. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, apparently, and look, man, if it if that venture is being successful for Logan Paul and KSI, whatever, Godspeed. I don't care. I don't begrudge them their success. Logan Paul's probably going to be involved with Seth Rollins in a match at WrestleMania for the WWE people out there. Um, okay. I actually don't hate that. Like Logan Paul is a pretty darn good professional wrestler. He's so effortlessly hateable. And his physicality is not bad. He's frequently got a better buckshot lariat than Adam Page does. <laughs> uh, certainly a better one than CM Punk. Uh, so we'll, we'll just... I don't know. Again, it's the hypocrisy of it that gets to me. It's the screwing of fighters that gets to me. The UFC wants to monetize every inch of their broadcast. I don't object. Like I said, it annoys me as a consumer, but I get it, and I'm not standing on my high horse going, how dare you. My how dare you is how dare you pretend that you care about the aesthetic presentation of your product when it comes to screwing over fighters, and not at all when it comes to literally everything else that might make you more money. That's what I object to. I don't even object to your greed. I I object to you lying about it. Have some honesty. But no, you're a promoter, and promoters can't be honest, so... Oh, well. Moving on to news. More news. The latest season of The Ultimate Fighter announced its coaches. It will be... Drumroll, please, if you care. And I don't, so no drumroll. Conor McGregor and Michael Chandler will coach the next season of The Ultimate Fighter and then fight at welterweight at the conclusion... Given the timelines in place between filming and when the show will air, this is likely to be an event that takes place August. That's kind of the hunch here. Uh, would, again, that would be my guess. For whatever this is worth, Conor McGregor has not yet re-entered the USADA testing pool, and per their rules, which mean nothing, as they have demonstrated repeatedly, but per their rules, put air quotes around the rules, remember Rule's only a rule if it's enforced. He must be in the testing pool for six months prior to the fight and pass at least two tests. Uh, Again, none of that's going to, unless he actually fails a drug test, not going to stop the fight. Even if he fails a drug test, might not stop the fight. Because this is stuff the UFC has done in the past. So as as for the season of The Ultimate Fighter, I do not care. I have not watched The Ultimate Fighter in a great many years. I will not watch this one. As for the fight, whatever. Um, This this is largely a PR move by Conor McGregor to try and distract people from his ongoing legal woes. Uh, In fact, I saw a a joke about this, that they're going to be required to stage the season of The Ultimate Fighter near an ocean so so that anyone anyone made nervous by being in a confined space with Conor McGregor will be able to swim to safety. Uh, Amused me. Yeah, I I don't care. Uh, Again, for the fight itself, winnable for either guy. My hunch is to lean a little bit towards Chandler. I think McGregor's a bit washed. Not saying he can't win, but between injuries and time off and everything else, like, yeah, I think Conor's on the wrong side of it. All right, let's do a couple of fight announcements and whatnot, and then we will get out of here. So UFC 287, I mentioned this a little bit a couple of weeks ago. It now has a venue. It will take place at the Miami Dade Arena in Miami. The UFC's relationship with Miami has been a little bit touch and go. In fact, there was one event that they held there. Um, I want to say it was Yoel Romero and Leodo Machida that did very poorly. Attendance wise and whatnot, like the, the UFC is in fact let me have a quick look how many events because they had the Jacksonville stuff, but North and South Florida are about as different as North as North and South California, Like There's some serious differences there. So let me have a quick look because um, they had 273 there. Uh, They had 261 they had, again the, the run of stuff that was at Jacksonville in 2020 when they when Florida was willing to let them run shows there. Uh then there was the one in Tampa in 19. Uh before then also in 19 you had Jack Array and uh Jack Hermanson. Then you got to go, again, 18 for Emmett and Stevens. Yeah, before that, like, you had to go way back to 2016 for Glover Teixeira and Rashad Evans. Then 15 in Orlando for the second fight between Rafael dos Anjos and Donald Cerrone. And before that, yeah, 2015. So you had this pretty hefty, yeah, Um, that was in Hollywood, Florida. That was uh, Machida Romero, and that was... Presentation-wise, that was kind of a disaster. (laughs) So the UFC's relationship with South Florida has been a little bit hit and miss. Uh, They are taking, again, 287 there. That's headlined by the second MMA fight between Alex Pereira and Israel Adesanya. Co-main event of Gilbert Burns and Jorge Masvidal. So, we'll see. But we have the date now. We have, we already had the we already had the date. We have the venue for that now, so that's good. Um, some fights got shuffled around. The fight between Marlon Vera and Corey Sandhagen is now going to main event the UFC on ESPN 43 card that is set to take place in San Antonio, Texas. My my relationship with MMA crowds is a bit iffy, but if you wanted to have a fight that deserved a crowd, so to speak, for the atmosphere and whatnot. Um, Varen Sandhagen's gonna be a great fight. So, fine with that. That, because they were talking about main eventing that with, like, Irina Aldada and Raquel Pennington, too, and just no one cares. Varen Sandhagen is a very good, very deserving main event. That did monkey around with Uf- the February 18th card. This is UFC on ESPN plus 77 which has a main event of Tyler Santos and Aaron Blanchfield. Now, that's a decent enough fight. Again, it's a decent enough fight night main event. It's not great, but it's not the worst thing in the world. Again, I don't blame anyone for not being excited about it, but it might crown the next challenger to that particular title. It's a relevant fight for the division. Santos wants another crack at Valentina. She gave Valentina the closest fight anyone has at flyweight. And Blanchfield looks like a destroyer. She's, She's looked real good up to
1: this point. So
0: that's fine. However, the rest of that main card goes as follows. At light heavyweight, Jordan Wright and Zach Pauga... Didn't know anyone had like a klaxon out there squeezing the rubber ball. Pauga, so I shouldn't make I shouldn't mock the gentleman's name. A heavyweight fight between Josh Parisian and Jamal Pogues. Don't know where that gentleman is from, so I don't know how to pronounce that. I apologize. I'll look it up more later. So we're light heavyweight, heavyweight. Next down on the card, another light heavyweight fight: William Knight and Marcin Procnio. And Jim Effen Miller, who I love, he will be fighting.
1: Like, I like Jim Miller a
0: lot, and anyone who's been around the sport as long as I have should love Jim Miller because he's awesome, and he's still awesome, even you know, in his slightly diminished. Like, he's old, he's a little bit over the hill. I don't say that unkindly. I love, I still like the guy. Um, He was supposed to fight... Yeah, he was supposed to fight Gabriel Benitez. However, Gabriel Benitez has withdrawn from that currently. It's Jim Miller versus TBD. I'm not prone to to being one of these people who goes, Oh, this is the worst main card ever. I don't know that this is the worst main card ever, but... You could argue it, and I'm not—I'd have to dig to find a worse one. I'm not saying I couldn't. I'm saying off the top of my head, this is—this is deeply, deeply uninteresting. That main event is relevant. But, boy, is, I mean, what's the rest of this card look like? Let me have a quick look here. So, again, Miller and Benitez is off at the moment. So we got a few TBDs here. Carlston Harris is fighting TBD. Joe Selecki versus TBA. Um, what else do we have? Lena Landsberg and uh, Maria Brena Silva. Ovin St. Pru and Felipe Linz. Uh Nazim Sadjakov versus Evan Elder. AJ Fletcher and Thema Gorimbo. Gorimbo, until I hear otherwise. Like, this is not interesting or compelling stuff. It's just not. And I don't think it's wrong to say that. So that card, that's weak. I'll be covering that on February 18th. So if you wish to share in my misery and potentially make me feel better, we'll be previewing that next week, I believe. Oy.
1: Um, So,
0: yeah. Some of these cards, man, like... Look, the the European contingent was making fun of everyone in America for, you know, the Lewis and Spivak start time and just complaining about it. Like, we do this all the time. Like, okay. I've said this before. I'm going to say it again. Let's do two things here, Europeans. One, I appreciate your suffering. I've done these stupid start times a lot. When the UFC was doing, you know, primetime cards in Singapore and whatnot, I was covering them live. So... I I do feel your pain and I acknowledge your pain. However, you're staying up till odd hours for something like Mikashev versus Volkanovsky. If Islam Mikashev and Alexander Volkanovsky's main card had a main had a start time of one AM Eastern, I'd be up for it. You're staying up until weird ass hours and suffering for good stuff. We're staying up. I had to stay up until 2 in the freaking morning for Derek Lewis and Sergey Spivak. If I wasn't covering that, I would not watch it live. I'd watch it on demand the day after, like a sane person. But I cover it, so c'est la vie. If your argument is we're going to stay up until you know 2.30 in the morning to watch Tyler Santos versus Aaron Blanchfield, you have a problem. Seek help.
1: You shouldn't do that. Watch it the day after, like a sane person. No one will think less of you.
0: I mean, I probably wouldn't watch this card if I wasn't covering it. It's one of those. I'd read the results and go, oh, okay. A couple of fights that I care about. Maybe catch, you know, clips of finishes on Twitter. But I cover it. So this is what I do and that's that's where we are. Uh all right, anything else on the Let me check Twitter. Let's see if anything crazy is going on. If not, plugs and we will get out of here. All right, nothing new. So, what do I got this week? Well, this week there will be the usual spate of coverage. Uh movies-wise uh Tuesday, where I think it's Tuesday. Some of these have been moved to Monday, so I have to double-check my calendar. Yeah, Tuesday on Damn You Hollywood, we will be reviewing the apparent number one movie in the United States, Knock at the Cabin, starring Big Dave Batista. Uh, Latest M. Night Shyamalan movie, we'll give that a review. Mark and I and... Alexis? Jason Teasley. Myself, Mark Radelich, and Jason Teasley will review Knock at the Cabin. Uh, sadly, I was not able to read the book on which it's based. Uh, if you're curious, it's based on a novel called The Cabinet at the End of the World, so I might have to pick that up when I get the chance. Anywho, we will be reviewing that. As for the rest of what's going on, uh, the usual spate of professional wrestling coverage, AEW's Dark Elevation on Monday, MLW stuff on Thursday, and WWE SmackDown on Friday. WWE is in... They are having to accelerate the build to elimination chamber because it's coming up very, very quickly. So we will be covering that. I don't think I have been asked to cover anything else at the moment. So tune in for any of that, and of course UFC 284 on Saturday. So in the wrestling and MMA zones of 411mania.com, give those a read if you like my work. So with that, uh, we will be back here next week to review UFC 284 preview that poor, poor Apex card, and all the like. Thank you all, as always, for being here. I deeply, deeply appreciate it. Stay safe out there and continue to be well, be safe,
1: and behave.